Hello, everybody. Um, on today's episode of Office Hours, I'm going to be sitting down with Professor Gocek from the University of Michigan's LSA Sociology Department and really excited to learn more about her background um, in studying policy, um, sociocultural research, and how um, conditions can be made better for many different ethnic groups in society. So that being said, welcome to the podcast, Professor Gocek. Um, if you'd like to get us started by telling us a little bit more about yourself and your background, um, and then following that up with something interesting and a fun fact that your students or the greater Michigan community may not know about you, that'd be really cool. Thank you uh, for having me. Um, um, I'll share with you whatever you, know, uh, you are interested in. I was born and raised in Istanbul, Turkey, and I attended all my education there. Um, I was uh, you know, uh, born into this upper-class family and as a consequence there, uh, I was considered a white Turk, uh, which is, of course, a part of the upper classes. Um, after getting uh, the best education I could there in Turkey, uh, I came to Princeton uh, for my PhD and got one in sociology. And uh, when I came, I was very interested in uh, westernization and how westernization, uh, especially consumption of Western goods, institutions and ideas, impacted uh, Turkish society. Uh, so I'm interested in general in social change as well. Uh, and as I started working on that, uh, I sort of expanded uh, my uh, purview to include other Middle Eastern countries as well and sort of learn the languages. And probably my uh, most significant work there um, sort of emerged. Uh, I have two books on um, Westernization. Uh, one is uh, uh, East Encounters, West France and the Ottoman Empire in the 18th century. Uh, that's uh, followed by, uh, 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 what was it? Uh, uh, the one on uh, Rise of the Bourgeoisie, Demise of Empire, which was my dissertation, looking at the consumption of Western goods and uh, institutions and idea was when I did that, I realized that there was a bourgeoisie in, in, in Turkey. There was basically a, a non-Muslim um, bourgeoisie of mostly Jews, Christians, uh, um, and, and Greek Christians, or the Greek room, as we call them. And what happened was that with nationalism uh, emerging uh, uh, and from within the transition from empire uh, to nation state, uh, that uh, uh, multi-religious bourgeoisie multicultural bourgeoisie was eliminated and uh, reflect uh, and re replaced by a Turkish ethnic national bourgeoisie of which of course my family uh, was a member uh, so I was a member of of the business uh, sort of world and before uh, my family had been in like administration governance and then they shifted um, you know very strategically I guess uh, into um, business with the transition uh, to nation state. When I looked at that and how the uh, sort of minorities were eliminated, I said, well, what implications did that have for Turkey? And unfortunately, it meant, uh, of course, when you have like a one ethnic group dominating, you don't tolerate uh, difference and you use sort of violence against them. And if you get away from with violence, 
if you have no accountability, you keep doing the same thing again. So I looked at the Armenian genocide from that vantage point. So I looked at Turkish society for the first time from the vantage point of a minority group, the Armenians, which was for me uh, very sobering because I had been born into, of course, the hegemonic dominant. And I, for the first time, realized that the minority perspective uh, doesn't, they don't have the resources, uh, they have fear and anxiety. I mean, you know, and their location uh, in uh, society makes them very precarious. They don't trust the system. The system doesn't trust them. And I sort of, I was looking at how the violence that was conducted against them against the Armenians in both the Ottoman Empire and Turkey has been uh, uh, very much uh, um, denied throughout. So that's basically uh, the book, uh, my sort of magnum opus until this moment looks at uh, this uh, whole uh, idea of uh, what does it look like to look from everything uh, from the vantage point of the Armenians or any minority group? After doing that, um, and because of my activism, uh, I'm now going to be uh, looking at the Kurds, which is also another significant minority group these days, because basically uh, the uh, religious minorities uh, got pretty much eliminated. There are like uh, one in a thousand at the moment, whereas they used to be up to 40% of the empire at some point. So there's drastic reduction in their number. And that's what happens when you exclude minorities and aggress upon them and then don't hold anyone uh, accountable for that aggression. That's what happens. So then I took that idea and I started looking at um, American society because I, of course, now have lived in this society more than I have in Turkey. And there uh, I was very interested, likewise, in foundational violences of, 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 the, of the United States. And because of that, I am now very interested in looking at uh, the experience of Native Americans initially, uh, because they had all the lands they were on plundered and got nothing in return, basically. And with private property, uh, this white settlers uh, literally colonized everything. Uh, with only paying them beads and such uh, and nothing in return. And for example, even though the University of Michigan is uh, on, you know, situated on lands uh, uh, granted by Native Americans so that their kids could get an education here, uh, they still do not fully uh, deliver on their promise because they only provide uh, tuition help uh, to uh, only Native Americans born in Michigan, as if, you know, they didn't have, of course, back then, uh, they weren't sort of confined by the state. So they should be uh, offering, I think Michigan should be offering that to all Native Americans, regardless of where they live in the United States and Canada, even uh, where there are some. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the, the other thing uh, they do is, uh, you know, um, after that, after that, uh, uh, they should be also providing them not only with tuition, but also with, um, you know, a stipend because these are very poor uh, people and it is very hard for students to both do the work and, uh, you know, try to make money to make ends meet. So those are my things with respect to uh, at least what I observe and the sort of policy implications I'm focusing now at the university level. 
The second one with respect to native, uh, with blacks, of course, is that with uh, they were forcefully brought here violently and unfortunately initially as property rather than humans. That of course is extremely dehumanizing. And for two centuries then it was their labor that was exploited. And, uh, uh, and we haven't uh, yet compensated for that. And we assumed like we could just make them free, but they hadn't had access to these resources for a long time. They couldn't even have access to the uh, uh, to their labor's uh, sort of market value was all exploited by the landowners, of course, or the uh, plantation owners in, in, in the South. So what could we do with that? I mean, and there is the whole idea of, of course, uh, um, acknowledging, I argue, this violence uh, we have against the Native Americans and uh, Black Americans, because if we do not do that, that violence and sort of the way of treating uh, violence, uh, treating minorities with violence, then gets applied to all other groups that come later. Uh, because uh, violence becomes normalized and uh, naturalized uh, as a consequence, uh, you know, because people have always resolved these problems through violence rather than diplomacy, rather than acknowledging uh, the rights of others. And they just continue that. And that's how hopefully it has to change in the long term. That's how uh, those two sort of founding, uh, foundational, let's say, minority groups uh, relate then to all the other non-white, uh, of course, uh, groups that come uh, to the United States later from anywhere, South America, Southeast Asia, uh, like myself, the Middle East. And that is how I sort of tie my work, uh, what I'm doing uh, with what, uh, you know, I like to be, uh, I like to see done in the society. Uh, so I'll stop there. Awesome, yeah, that was a really great um, breakdown of um, how meaningful your research and uh, your areas of studies have meant to you from like um, a standpoint of your own personal experience, finding something, a topic that really resonates with you. So that was super cool to hear. Um, more specifically, if you, there isn't anything you've covered on the topic, my next question would be, how did you decide to take the professional path you've taken and what specifically drew you towards academia as opposed to other career paths? Ah, well, um, I was born, and as, as you know, and raised in Turkey. I was initially um, very interested in changing society. I mean, as, as well, of course, if you're a member of the elite, you think that the society is yours and, you know, you should, you're committed to sustaining your uh, hegemony and, you know, you try to see what, how to make it better. In my case, of course, I wasn't interested in sustaining the hegemony. I wanted to bring the excluded groups in. Uh, so that is how, uh, you know, um, I changed my orientation, uh, orientation initially there. I thought, of course, you could do that through politics, uh, but politics are extremely dirty. Um, you pretty much cannot have a moral backbone. Uh, your story changes with respect to uh, things. And in Turkey, I couldn't, uh, like as a woman also, uh, you know, go into that very sort of dirty field, so to speak. Uh, so I said, well, uh, but I want to study how the society ought to change. Uh, and then that was that sort of left me. I said, well, academia is safe. Uh, well, little did I know, of course, uh, 
when I went into academia and started studying these issues, especially uh, minorities in Turkey, it became extremely contentious uh, because Turkish state and society didn't like the fact that I documented their denial of violence. Uh, so when I was doing that, I mean, I got a lot of uh, sort of hate mail. I got death threats. Uh, people said I was uh, an Armenian, which I'm not. I'm an ethnic Turk going all the way back to the 16th century. But still, uh, I mean, you know, so I was um, really harassed, uh, so to speak. Uh, so that that comes, of course, with the territory. They harass you in order to get you out of the field. But in my case, and in the case I'm sure of others, it just makes you even more committed to what you're doing. Because the only reason I'm in academia also is that we have freedom of expression and thought. We can ask our own questions, do our own research, and it is not controlled by the state or any other, uh, you know, board um, or governance. Uh, and that for me is probably the most uh, important thing that I don't have uh, in Turkey, uh, and I didn't have in Turkey, unfortunately. And that is what I have at the moment here. But of course, I'm also very invested, therefore, in making sure uh, that freedom, uh, that space uh, for, uh, you know, others, so to speak, the other to participate always exists and expands so that it comes to a, a, an equal level with those who are uh, a part of the hegemony. For sure. Sounds like a great experience. So I'm super glad that you ended up finding something that means a lot to you. So yeah. shifting on the years a little bit in the scope of this interview, I'm interested to learn a little bit more about your classes, um, which whatever you may teach at this university, and which what specifically, like in a really brief nutshell, engages you most about these topics. Essentially, why should a student take your class? What's your pitch towards any UFM student? Well, this is a great uh, thing. When I came here, interestingly enough, uh, when you come from a country other than, um, you know, the United States, even though I got my PhD at Princeton, which is considered a decent school, um, I, in the sociology department, they initially allowed me to only teach uh, sort of undergraduate courses because they didn't think, uh, I guess, people would be interested or maybe they didn't trust that I knew it well enough. Uh, it was only after... Uh, I got tenure that I started teaching graduate courses. Before that, uh, the, I did, however, try to introduce some classes uh, that uh, was much more in my expertise area. So the first undergraduate class I wanted to teach was women and Islam, because of course I'm a Muslim woman and there are so many misconceptions about Muslim women having no agency, no power, whatever, which isn't the case, of course. It's just that it's located in the private sphere in places where we do not see uh, that power. Uh, so because of that, when I wanted to teach that course, uh, the chair at the time said, well, who would want such a course? I said, look, let me teach it as an elective and then we'll see if people are interested or not. Of course, there was a lot of interest. Um, then I had all the students who took the course petition uh, to make it a regular course. And I, I taught that for a very long time. Uh, and there was always a, a large group of people, mostly non-whites, of course, uh, mostly Muslims uh, from Dearborn, um, you know, and uh, it was uh, good to be able to talk about something, two things that are othered, women and, of course, Islam. 
Later on, uh, with the graduate courses, I started also developing uh, my own courses. Uh, and there um, I developed, um, for example, one on postcolonial theory, another one on culture, history, memory. So those were my own uh, courses. Recently, uh, we also try to recruit and have lots of undergraduates, I guess, come into sociology. So I developed two courses at the uh, 200 level, which I'm currently teaching as well. One of them is called Terrorism, Torture and Violence. And I said, oh, my God, I mean, you know, let's see who will take this course, if anyone, uh, especially because, you know, violence is such a violent topic. Um, and I said, I bet you there'll be mostly uh, males. No, I mean, people were very interested in it. That's also fascinating to me, of course, uh, especially your generation has had so many experiences around violence since the, from 9-11 to 2008 crisis to all those things that you are very interested in violence in a way the young, older generations are not. And that has now 125 uh, students. We start with Islamic State uh, terrorism, Islamic terrorism, Islamic State terrorism. Then we look at US uh, torture in Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay. And then we end up now uh, with the micro level uh, campus sexual assault so that you could see violence at the macro level, national level, and then micro level. So that's one course. The other course, like uh, this, if that is the war course, the other one is the peace course, and that's called uh, sociology of culture from the Kennedys to the Kardashians. And then that's to sort of lure you guys in by putting in, of course, uh, Kennedy and Kardashian, and it worked. So they call me the course whisperer uh, because of my course titles. And in that one, I start with the Kennedys, uh, Kennedy era, the welfare state, uh, to demonstrate how the culture is shaped around the, the idea of the welfare state. Then we go into the Reagan era, which is, of course, when neoliberalism is introduced into American society, where markets are sort of prioritized over everything, including humanity. And then I end up with uh, the Kardashians or uh, Trump and all the sort of the epitome of neoliberalism uh, through celebrating consumption. And that's what uh, we're doing. So that sort of takes it, uh, it to, through a more uh, positive uh, uh, role rather than a sort of a destructive one uh, through violence. And th that's what I guess those, and then I teach theory um, at the graduate level uh, still, and I'm developing now my own theory about how to approach uh, um, analysis, theoretical analysis from the vantage point of minorities as opposed to the majority, which is of course what dominates all existing theory. So that's giving me a hard time, but I'm having a great time trying to figure things out. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. The, the Kennedy to Kardashian class definitely seems like a, an interesting one. A lot of different uh, egos and perspectives you get to cover within the course of that class. So. Definitely seems like something, um, if I had the room, I would be interested in taking it. So thank you for sharing that. Now to shift the conversation even a little bit more and focusing on uh, how you interact with students. What do you feel is the most rewarding about you to get to interact and work with students on a daily basis? Well, um, two things. Um, the lecture courses are uh, uh, great because I'm able to, uh, uh, I do not have, um, the sections, the sections are by graduate student instructors uh, taught by 
JSI, so to speak. I only lecture. What is important there is uh, I like to see how uh, students react. I do ask them mostly questions, trying to sort of apply what we, ha we have conceptualized to ongoing events. So that, for example, we discuss the social impact of COVID on mental health and you know, how it impacts their lives how it sort of it escalates anxiety. And it's very rewarding to see um, that uh, they, and they are also always telling me that they're not bored uh, because I'm not talking about things out there, but I'm talking about things that are a part of their lives and it enables them to critically think about those things. And that's what sort of keeps them interested is the sort of the contemporary focus and examples. Um, I give them uh, usually. So that is uh, very um, heartening. And also after graduate students graduate, I've been uh, teaching this course for five years. Every year I get like uh, a couple of students who are now out in the real world. And then they say, Professor Gecek, we're out here and what you've taught us has helped us so much and it's still helping us. I hope you're doing well. So it's so sweet that they are also able to, you know, uh, express their appreciation. And I love that too, of course. So that's probably the most rewarding is to see that I make at least a positive difference uh, to uh, the young, you know, undergraduates in, in helping navigate their lives, not only in college, but also afterwards. That's probably the most rewarding for me, the applicability of things uh, to their lives, of what I teach to their lives. For sure, definitely. Uh, from what I've like studied before in like an academic setting and many different classes related to like uh, organizational and management theory, um, task significance is one of the most important things in any career. So it's super um, refreshing to see that um, it's really important and uh, one of the most rewarding parts of um, what you do. So yeah. thank you for sharing that. Uh, next question related to students. In your mind, what do you feel are some secrets to success, whether this is in college or beyond? And what skills, whether these could be technical skills or more so on the soft skill end, do you feel like students should build in order to position themselves best for the future? Well, the one thing which has become a big issue uh, this year, for example, and this is what I'm sort of now talking with my colleagues, is that uh, the lack of uh, people, person-to-person uh, -person interaction for the last year and a half have really decreased the social skills <laughs> of uh, students because, you know, the freshmen who come in have never been in a, an academic, I mean, you know, a higher education environment. That's understandable. And the sophomores are, haven't been in that environment either because they were, we were all on, uh, you know, uh, online for the, the last year and a half. And then I feel that the juniors and seniors have sort of forgotten half of what they did have before the COVID. So uh, that was what I was talking to them about because uh, there is a lot of social anxiety in how they process knowledge and they're worried about whether they are prioritizing the right things in their answers and they're not some of the time. Uh, so I think the most important thing is uh, to develop better communication skills uh, because it is, um, uh, you know, it's a two-way street. We need to have a lot of feedback to see what works and what doesn't work. And I see the, the course as an ongoing thing so that when I realized that they were having problems 
processing things. Uh, they didn't have enough time in exams. We reduced the number of questions. We reduced the readings. We increased the summaries. So, I mean, you know, and that, it's that back and forth which makes it uh, um, very um, uh, rewarding. Apathy is the worst thing. I mean, you know, so engagement probably, social engagement in the class is uh, what is most rewarding to us. And also, of course, uh, uh, to the students, because uh, you have to make what you learn your own for it to stay with you. And, and that is how you do it, is by then, uh, uh, you know, uh, taking that in and making it a part of your uh, own experience uh, moving forward. For sure, um, definitely seems like um, there's a lot um, that could like be important for students in order to like set themselves up professionally. Um, mm -hmm. Get the most out of you if I'm going to learn something about like self growth. I think communication really is like central to that. Whether it's like communicating with um, a friend or someone close to you and maintaining like um, maintaining like relationships and friendships regardless of distance. Um, learning to communicate professionally um, when you're like finding jobs or like trying to grow in, from a career standpoint. And lastly, being able to communicate with your professors and know like when to ask for help, what to ask for. So all of that exactly. makes sense for sure. So and yeah, I mean, and the problem there is of course, there is a big difference uh, between uh, sort of uh, white students uh, and non-white students in mm -hmm. re with respect to that, because white students having been a part of dominant society know that and are always seeking help, asking questions, whatever, whereas uh, non-white ones uh, do not feel as comfortable, as confident uh, to ask. Uh, I mean, so if you do not communicate it, what it, disadvantages those who are not a part of uh, the dominant uh, majority that I, I usually share with my students all of these things. So as to get those, who, especially who are not a part of uh, uh, the you know, dominant majority uh, to participate and fully get rewarded equally with those who are a part of the dominant majority too. So that's the one thing I also try to make sure is to sort of level the playing field, so to speak, by using communication uh, from both sides. Awesome, for sure. And now my last question for the interview would be, um, if you could give, your current self could give any advice towards um, yourself when you were starting undergrad or give one piece of advice to any undergraduate, undergraduate student today, what would it be? Well, this is uh, fascinating. I think the hardest thing, uh, you know, I sometimes look back at where I was and where I've ended up. I mean, you know, so I started in Istanbul, Turkey, and here I am in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I mean, you know, and I said, well, how did I end up at this place? And I think uh, if you look at all the decisions sort of I made, uh, it is uh, sort of what you have to realize is that there is always, I mean, at least I, I probably have uh, approached it pragmatically. I've always tried, but you have to have flexibility and realize that you cannot fully map out your life, um, you know, to the T. Uh, you sort of have to work with all these uh, things, issues, whatever, make compromises and see how, uh, how you can go forward. And in that, the most important thing is to have this vision of where you want to end uh, up, but have that as a vision rather than an obsession uh, so that you can uh, definitely uh, 
flex things uh, so as to sort of make the most of the of the uh, resources that you are given or delivered uh, and to sort of expand them as much as you can that probably is the way I went about things uh, uh, myself uh, uh, and managed uh, uh, pretty well, I guess, uh, uh, to reach, uh, you know, where I have. And then when you reach that place, uh, because I am at the, the top sociology department in the United States, which is like the top one, literally globally as well. If that's the case, you know, I say, okay, I'm arrived here. So What's meaning do I, how do I make meaning from this point onward? And that's when I started developing this pedagogical agenda in generating and creating the next generation of people like myself to make sure that they also have uh, at least my help uh, and acknowledgement in uh, uh, going through and fighting, especially against the obstacles uh, that they have in the most uh, pragmatic way possible. Seems like really wise um, and really applicable advice. So I'm um, super glad you shared that. Uh, I think that concludes it for uh, today's version of uh, Office Hour. Once again, thank you very much to Professor Gocek for taking the time to come on. Um, should learn more and share about her um, unique experience, both in terms of um, background, uh, her journey to academia, the classes she teaches, just overall what she brings to the university. So thank you very much for that, Professor. And thank you very much, Rohan Kamat, for giving you this opportunity. It was fun. Absolutely.